If you have your Bible with you this morning, I want you to open to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. These are familiar verses. If you're a Christian, you've been in church long. You have no doubt heard this or heard reference to it or read about it. Let's begin in verse 57. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever you goest. And Jesus said unto him, You're the man I'm looking for. I wish everybody were like you that would follow me wherever I go. Excuse me, that's a modern translation. It says, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. You sure you want to follow me? And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury the dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first, or first me, go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Sobering thought, isn't it? It's a sobering statement because it narrows things down a bit. The other morning when I got up and I was getting ready to come to town and all, I had this, not a vision, not anything, just a picture in my mind of uh, large flat areas like the flatter parts of our country, the prairies and the plains. And it's full of fields, just little fields, individual looking. Everybody had a field. That's what it was. Everybody had a field. It was big enough that it was a challenge because in these fields there were rocks and there were stumps and there were obstacles, difficulties along the way. And the cloud was such that on bright sunny days there was little relief it wasn't exactly what you thought it was from afar off looking at those fields. They were just plain and smooth and pretty comfortable looking. When you got down close to them, though, they were a challenge. And in each field, there was a plow. And those plows were designed for all of those who want to follow Jesus. And the end of the field would be when you've plowed up and back, up and back, as long as it takes whatever is required until you get to the far end on the other side. And in this picture I saw in various fields, there would be a plow, oh, 15 feet up, a little furrow of some sort behind it, and then there would be uh, several furrows, and another plow over here sort of a third of the way up in the field, another one on the other end of the field. You look at, at these fields, and there were abandoned plows in all of them. None of the fields got finished. They all got started. But none of them were finished. Now, my title of the message today is Abandoned Plows. If abandoned is too hard to spell, just spell forsaken plows. Because these were lonely plows or plows that had once been used, but for some reason had been forsaken. Now, our text in verse 62 Jesus said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's interesting to note that a couple of these three men that came to the Lord, they put their families before their call. Now, a lot of people do that. A lot of people idolize their families. I've known people that don't come on the weekday night or like a Wednesday night because, as one person said once, not very many do this, but this happened once or maybe twice, well, that's our family night. Of course, I'm responding, well, don't you think you could have your family night maybe Sunday night or some other night? You have to have it on a night that we have a called assembly. Well, I'm just doing what I need to do. Okay. And a lot of people, I do think, put their families in all the warm and cozy things. And it's all in the Bible, too. But all the good things about fathering, parenting, mothering, 
raising children, the bond that is needed there, the cohesiveness and all the dedication that it takes to make that a success is never put before the Lord. When God sets a plow before you, He sets it before you because you want to follow Him. You came to Him. You said, I want to be a Christian, or I want at that passionate moment when your sins were exposed, I want to be forgiven of my sins. Just terrible what I've been. And you came to Him. And He points you to a field, and in every field there's a personalized plow. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a plow before, if you know what a plow is. I think you all have an idea of it. When I grew up, which was a long time ago, it seems, I remember some of my ancestors, many of them plowed with a team of mules. And they had a plow that you had to hold on to. It had handles on it. It went down to a big wheel. Some of them did. The cultivators did, but... Some of them didn't have a wheel, but they had a big spade in the middle of this plow. You had these two handles and a brace, and then there was a, a spade, a metal thing curved like that, which and pointed. And this design, as you go forward, it points down, and it goes down into the soil. And then as the mules go forward, you just have to hold it and steady and keep it that way and hope your mules are well-trained. And you had two reins across one on this side of your neck and one on the other. And and the the man that plowed had a really difficult job. Nobody looked forward to it. Nobody had any little ear things in their ears to listen to the latest, whatever was going on. (laughs) It was not fun. The sun didn't care if you were plowing or not. It didn't matter about the weather or the dryness. It didn't matter. It's just that you had a job to do. And if you don't do this, it'll not get done. And if it doesn't get done, then your family's going to lack for the food that you plant because there's no supermarket if you want to eat, you got to plant. And if you want to have seed for next year, you're going to have to plant something this year and save some of that seed for next year. It's just responsibility. It's what a responsible man had to do. And it wasn't easy. Again, as those mules could have a, a contrary day. They could forget what G and Hall means. And you didn't always have time to pull this way. You just hollered, Hall! And they turned this way. And they get the other end of the row, thank you. And you get the other end of the row, and he's hollering, gee! And so the mule, they were just trained to do that. They would do that. And then I'm familiar with the little cultivator's plow. It was a single plow. Nothing was hooked up to it except your hands. The ones I'm familiar with had a big wire wheel, a metal wheel on the front, and the little spade in the back. It was one manpower. It didn't have any mule power to it. And, and you had to keep pushing it. And the ground sometimes resisted that plow. There would be a clod there or a rock or something. It wasn't easy. When I was in Israel, there was a lot of these little houses had these little little plots. And they would plow them with their hands. And But the soil is so rocky over there. And they would hit these rocks. I saw a commentary once and saw a man doing that. And he would hit these rocks and it was dusty. And I think, why would you bother with that? Because he has to do that in order to feed his family. It's a part of what you do. There's nothing else you can do. If you don't do it, nobody is going to do it for you. And folks, all of us in this room who say we're Christian means we have all come to Jesus. We've all come for a cleansing at Calvary's tide. We've all come to be forgiven of our, depending on where you were, your horrible sins. You have come to be made acceptable under the Lord by being cleansed, and you want to follow Him. And in every case, Jesus doesn't get overly excited about you coming. Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. He said, how do you know where I'm going? I don't even have a place to stay at night. How do you know you want to follow me? Well, Jesus, say some of the stuff we hear in church about how glad everybody is. You know what? Very seldom did he ever do that. Because the challenge of living a Christian life, the Christian life, on his terms which is what Christianity is, is something that you need to sit down and deal with because we're talking about a plow. Now, what is a plow 
spiritually. What do you think Jesus meant when he talked about a spiritual plow? I would call it, amongst all the things you can add to this, all the addendums, it's how we follow Jesus. It's how we follow him. The idea of a plow to explain this didn't come from us. It came from the Lord. Jesus said, no man who has put his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. And when you put your hands to it, it signifies that you are willing to abandon whatever would keep you from doing this. And you are committed to doing it until the field is finished. Now, that's the way he takes you coming to him. He reveals to you that your sins were forgiven at the cross. That all we like sheep have gone astray and all of that. And we begin to realize that we are in need of a Savior. And he became that. But following him is not just an act of, I see that hand, I'm raising your hand and then taking a nice comfortable seat in a very well made, you know, like this place, like a big fancy cathedral. It was a challenge. It was a life. Not only is it not easy, but the Bible says in the last days, many will depart. They're going to abandon their plow. That's what the Bible says. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I'd like to show you what I think is a plow here, a pretty good picture of a plow spiritually, or a spiritual view of a plow. Let's start with Luke 14 and verse 25. There went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said to them, This is a good time to establish ourselves a big movement. We've got plenty of men here to do all the building. We've got enough offerings that could come in to pay for all of this. Let's get started and make something out of this. Today, religionists today, preachers today, they had a great multitude. They'd be so excited because numbers mean, I guess, money or prestige. Biggest church, maybe. Nothing wrong with a lot of people coming to the Lord. God added 3,000 one day to the early church in one day. So I'm not against numbers. But if you get excited because, if you were a preacher, if you got excited because there was numbers and you wanted to keep the numbers and you know that they're all new and came out of various backgrounds, they might be a little timid here, a little bit, Something here. So you don't want to do anything to aggravate them. You don't want to do anything to turn them away. You don't want to do anything to discourage them. So you bring them all in and speak good things to them all so you can keep them all. Wouldn't that be the Christian way? Well, let's see if it is. Great multitudes, verse 25. And he turned and said to them, if any man come to me, I will bless him as he goes out. I will bless him as he comes in. He shall sit on the velvet carpet, say, praise the Lord, and I will come and minister to him. That's not Christianity. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, was it Satan? He cannot be my disciple. Great multitudes, difficult words. Let me ask you a question because you're thinking people. Why would Jesus say something like that when a lot of hungry, hurting, needy people came to him by a mass, a great multitude? It must have been a lot of them. Why would he turn and say that? Now, we know that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. God was in Christ reconciling the world. These are the words that God chose to speak to these people. He could speak no wrong because he's God. And what he spoke he had recorded because he wants us to read what he said to all these people that came to him. This is what he said. Now, why do you suppose he would say something like that? Why do you suppose that he would speak something that difficult. Hate? Hate your mother, your father, your wife, 
your children, and yourself. I can only imagine unlearned, untaught people listening to those words and your mind going through your hard drive as fast as it can to figure out what in the world could he mean by that? I thought he was a God of love. I thought we were to honor our parents. I thought a husband was to love his wife and a wife her husband. I thought children were supposed to love their parents and parents their children. I thought you were supposed to take care of yourself and, and not hate yourself like, you know, you don't just try to destroy yourself. you got to have some affection for maintenance for whatever God gave you to live in. Now, why would he turn around and say hate? Or was he saying that when it comes down to the choices in life you're going to have to make, if you're going to follow me because you are now, if you want to keep following me, one of the really hard choices you might have to make is from your family, which you have great affection for, and me when I call you to come apart and do something different. You've got to treat the alternative as you would treat something you hate. It's like saying, I would hate to think that I would give up Jesus for anything. I don't loathe myself. I don't loathe you. But the idea that the devil would try to get between you and God and make you put other things first besides Jesus, important things, your own life. But when you put your own life before his call to follow him, serve him, and operate with his plow, you can't be his disciple. Turn to the next book over, John chapter 6. Jesus, you're being a little hard on us this morning. John chapter 6 and verse 60. Many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this, said, Praise God for revelation. You know what they said? You can read it for yourself. Now, he's talking about, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood and so forth. That particular part of the Gospel of John. And many of his disciples, therefore, when they heard this saying, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can heed it? Hard means dried up, stiff. One translator says, it's of the voice or sounds as hoarse or harsh as things as hard and tough, not soft. What he's saying here when they said, this is a hard saying. Are we going to follow you and have to listen to this until the field's done? Have we so corrupted ourselves in our lifetimes and so full of flaws that you'll have to judge that if you don't keep dealing with us about judging ourselves, that you're going to have to judge us? Is that what they trained you to say, preacher? I mean, every time people come in, does it have to be a hammer? The Word of God is like a, what does it say about a hammer in Jeremiah? Isn't there something about a hammer in Jeremiah? What does a hammer do? It breaks up something. Or His Word is like fire. Isn't it? He never says, my Word is like a feather. Floating down into the echelons of the showered and shaved. To make soothing refrains cross their heart until they just love to sing. <laughs> oh, I love the preacher. He makes me feel so good. Would you have loved Jesus? Would you have traveled from here to wherever you had to go on a bony donkey to hear him? Would you have been so blessed when you traveled all this way and made this sacrifice for him to turn around and say, you want to follow me? Well, one condition is if you don't hate your mother, your father, your brethren, your wife, your sisters, and your own life also, you can't. You can't do it. Maybe he would say, I don't accept you. Now, see how quiet he got? Was it Jesus one time that said, Many shall say unto me, Lord, Lord, but I will say, I never knew you. What's going on here? Is there something we're missing in Christianity or in going to church? Is there something that God has been saying all along that has been shoved aside because it's too hard? A hard saying? I remember more than once I had people 
say to me after a sermon, man, that was a hard sermon. And I'm thinking, all I did was tell you what it says. See, everybody likes to go to church and everybody likes to confess. Well, I like teaching. I like to be taught. Sermons are fine as long as you don't explain what you mean. We can talk about faith in God as long as you say faith in God. Amen, brother. Woo! But then explain what faith in God means. And everybody goes, oh, man, I don't know about that. But that's the problem in Christianity today. We've been brought together and just given cliches or sentences that we all, yeah, amen, amen, amen. But we never really understood what they mean. Like the plow. The plow is just a neat little thing that Grandpa used, and, and uh, but it, it just, uh, it's just, uh, that uh, was, uh, was uh, nothing. But when you get right down to examining exactly what a plow does and how difficult it was, and how monotonous and boring it got, and you couldn't stop. There's no point in the Christian life where you don't have to do it anymore. It starts when you come to Him, and it ends when you go home. And there's nowhere in between you can stop off and go to the mall or do something else. Christianity is a plow religion. It requires effort. It requires something from you. You've got to commit yourself to doing this. And somebody said, well, that's a hard saying. Well, okay, is it true? See, that's what you have to ask yourself. Now, what I heard might have been a little bit disturbing, maybe hard or harsh. That's been an accusation. for Harsh. But is it true? Does the Bible verify this? Could you see this in the Scripture for yourself? Look in John 6 and verse 66. From that time on, many of His disciples went back and followed Him no more. Why? Because of the message. What was the message? All or nothing. Not part of you. Not some of you. All of you. There is no substitute. There is no alternative. There is not something else you can do that is marvelous in the sight of men that is acceptable to God. This is the way. You've got to live this way. This is the way we're called to live. That's what he said. Jesus did not conceal or downplay ever the high cost of discipleship. A disciple is a follower of Jesus, not a church program, not a high-ranking individual in history. Discipleship is following Jesus. Disciple means learner. You don't become a disciple by osmosis. You don't just one day say, well, now I'm a disciple. It's a decision you have to make. Nobody can make this decision for you. It's a decision that you have to make as you look at the Scripture. Not my interpretation of it, not somebody else's, but as I look at the Scripture, and I have to ask myself, am I willing to give up whatever would keep me from doing that in order to do that? Am I willing to go... That far. Go back to Luke 14. Is this what I'm willing to do? Verse 26. If any man come to me, you already heard it. But the, the verse at the end says, if he does not do this, if you're unwilling to do that, you cannot be my disciple. But what if the Spirit of the Lord came to you at night or spoke to you in a way you knew it was God? A lot of people would never know. They're not that familiar with this type of thing. But if God, in a distinct way, spoke to you, clear as a bell, no denying it, don't need to call, make a phone call, ask anybody, in your limited understanding of spiritual things, you knew this was God. And He spoke to you and He said, I want you to take your family and move to Saudi Arabia and start a church. He said, well, what about Shelbyville? I want you to make arrangements to leave, sell your house, where you got to do, in your farm, and leave the only place you've ever known, leave the only people you've ever known, the only place you grew up here, your family grew up here, your daddy grew up here. I want you to leave all of this and go to Zimbabwe. I think that's Africa. 
sounds like it would be. And I want you to go there and, and I want you to labor there in my vineyard. I need you there. Would you do it? Would you do it? You just bought a new home. You just got everything set and your closets are full. Your garage is full. Everything you want is there. And, and now the Lord says, I want you to abandon everything. Give up all your rights to it. Turn your back on it and go where I want you to go. Would you do it? If not, then all those other things become an idol in your life because you put that before God. Now, I know what we're thinking. Well, God would never ask me to do that. You know, you don't really know what God would ask you to do. He might ask you to go across the street to your neighbor and witness to him. Oh, no. He might shoot me. Yes, he might. And in your field, you wouldn't have to plow anymore. You'd be done. You made one little furrow and you went to heaven. Praise God. What a narrow little field that was. I didn't see that in my little picture. But I sure don't want my name to be hung on the gate of some field where there's a plow out there in the middle of it that's starting to get rusty because a long time ago, for some reason, something within me that I could not give up, the challenge was too hard. I couldn't give it up to go and serve the Lord. Even though I was bought with a price, He purchased me. He chose me. I didn't choose God. God chose me. Amen. He's the one who drug me out of the miry clay, out of that pit of sin and destruction, and set me in His presence and washed me and made me clean. He's the one that put a new song in my mouth, and He's the one who has the right to tell me to do whatever He wants me to do, and I have no right to refuse. And why is it so quiet? <gasps> Hamilton, that's hard. Is it hard? What's hard about it? Well, let's read a little bit more. We'll find out in a minute. Verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, a cross is a place where your will is turned over to God's will. I don't want to go. I am not willing to go. However, I am willing to lay down my will and do what your will is. That's the cross. It's dying to me. It's dying to my. It's dying to mine. Me, mine, mine. It's giving up all rights by action. I'm giving up all rights to myself in order to serve the Lord. I don't know how tomorrow is going to turn out. I don't know how successful or unsuccessful I will be. I don't know how I will do. If you sent me anywhere, I don't know if I can even do that. God didn't ask you if you thought you could do it. He said do it. Because He is able to supply half your needs according to His riches and glory. Thank you. All of your needs. If there is a need for you, ministerially speaking, you don't have a need. Because God has all your needs taken care of. He didn't choose us because we were equipped and adept. He chose us because He drew us to Him and we came to Him. And He says, now I want to use you in any way I want to, but you've got to die to every resistance you have to me. Because if you don't, your field will have a plow somewhere in it too with nobody behind it. You'll quit. In fact, He said, you cannot follow me. That's what a disciple does. You cannot be my disciple. Well, is that a hard saying? Let's go on. Let's see if it's hard. Verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? I would suggest to you that it means what it says. You've got to be willing at the beginning, and then if you're asked to do it, then you do it. Forsake it all. What about my dreams, my career? I just graduated from university. I'm summa cum laude, A number one, blue ribbon, fair stuff. I am uno. You want me to do what? Become nobody? 
You want me to lay all of that aside because you called me to church last week and you overwhelmed my heart. You put something in. I just want to preach it. After this engineering degree, after this doctor's degree, after all these years and thousands of dollars, and, and I came to the Lord, oh God, and now you want me to, to do something that I don't have a clue how to do? You want me to give up all of that? What would my family think? What would my mama, my mother, mama, what would I call my, my mama? What would your mother think? Oh, you poor thing. My daddy, I spent all that money on you. What would all my friends say? What would they all say? They would say, you are certified in time nuts. You have lost your, what we thought was a good mind. Let somebody else do it. That's what we say in church when things need to get done and we're the one that could do it. Let somebody else do it. I like being in the background. I don't want to have to get out there and do anything. I just want to go to church, sing songs, put a dollar in a bucket and go home. I, just, just let me do that. No, if it was that easy, there wouldn't be a plow in your life, but God put a plow. And when He brings you to Him, you go through the gate and He says, This is yours. And this field is yours to be done. And you say, what about all those rocks out there? Be careful. Be careful. Be sober. Be diligent. Your adversary, the devil, lays rocks in your path to cause you to stumble. The voices you hear to the right or to the left are distractions. They're trying to get you to look the other way so you can fall over that plow. Bark your shins and say a bad word. You gotta pay attention. You gotta be sober. You gotta be watchful. You gotta give the more earnest heed. You gotta take heed. Bible talks of it all the time. This is not an easy life. It wasn't intended to be. Only a few, Jesus said a few, F-E-W, a few will make it. Because everybody, it seems, has an excuse or a reason why I am not ready for that. I cannot do that in the estimation of myself and my talents. I just can't do what He's called me to do. I don't know how I can't do it. I can't preach. I can't serve. I can't help. I don't know how to do that. Again, as though you have to know how to do that. Let me tell you something. A seminary cannot teach you how to preach. They can teach you the mechanics of it, but only God can anoint you. And it doesn't matter... How skillful you are, it's the anointing that does the work. What was it Paul said? My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. They even said about him, his antis said, well, his speech is contemptible. He's not a very good speaker at all. Sometimes he's hard to follow. But somehow I get struck by things he says. Well, that's the anointing. All of you young men that might think God's God, you don't have to know how to preach. You can practice. You go out there in the yard and preach to all them ash trees in the backyard. Play like they're sinners. <laughs> Kick the little bushes. You too. You can practice. Because if you ever get a church, you'll think that's what's in the, it's in the church. Big trees, little trees, and bushes, you know. <laughs> Unless you're in Shelbyville, Kentucky. <laughs> but what did he say? He said, likewise, you forsake all that you have. You cannot be my disciple. Now, three times, three times, our Lord told a large multitude of people, a great multitude, more than is in this room. You've got to abandon everything family-wise that might get between you and God, or you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. You'll start out following me, but you won't follow. You'll find some reason not to keep going. You'll back off. You'll never admit you're not following Him because you still go to church, but you're not following Jesus. You've got your own agenda, hoping His will fit with yours. And then He says, you know, in that other verse, in verse 27, He said, you've got to bear your cross. Every day when you and God clash, you've got to die to you and let God have His way. Or you can't be a disciple. And then he finally said, if you're unwilling to forsake 
all that you have. It's what you don't forsake that will keep you from following Jesus. Maybe your money, maybe your career, maybe your family. You just can't see the logic in doing something that God gave you to do, therefore you don't do it. He said, well, you cannot be my disciple. And to get way ahead of myself, I would go this far and say this, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. You really don't have what it takes. Because the few that make it through are the dedicated and the consecrated, the committed. They do give up all. They really do. There's nothing that stands between them and the Lord, and they're willing to follow him all the way through. Now, verse 28. For which of you, because this is something that if you want to be a disciple, count the cost. There is a high cost to be a disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Or verse 31, who goes to war and he doesn't first sit down and count the cost? What if I told you this morning in this room that if you want to be a Christian, and if for some reason you're not, a church meeting is not for the lost, it's for the saved. For the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit. And people who need to be taught shouldn't have to be told how to be saved every week. We're here to learn. That's what we're here for, to teach. But when you hear things like what I've said so far, the call to follow Jesus to... Walk to glory in Zion. I'm singing this. Before you're willing to do all of that, you better sit down and count the cost and listen carefully to what he said about it. Just in Luke 14. Are you sure you're willing to do that? I'm not trying to discourage you from being a Christian. But you're not a Christian because you attend church and because you got baptized. You can't do something to save yourself. You are saved because you believe in what Jesus did for you. And you prove it by living it. Because faith, so-called faith without evidence or works, is dead. And even James said, that can't save you. You're not saved by works. But you're not saved apart from them either because works demonstrates what's in your heart. And if God changes your heart, we'll see it by the way you live. Your light will shine. We'll see your good works. And this is how we will all know. But he said, you've got to count the cost. One time, a young man, in a national moment, you know, the building was bombed in New York and the patriotic passions were inflamed and a young man goes to the recruiter's office and he says I want to serve my country I'm giving up my college time I'm letting go of everything I want to serve my country I'm going to be a soldier now the recruiter today would probably and I don't know I've never been recruited and I've never been a recruiter and I don't know what a recruitee hears but I would imagine today with the need for quotas and to get so many recruits every month, they, oh, yeah, come on, man, you know, we're going to send you around the world. You're going to be, oh, you're going to love this life. Woo, it's nothing to it. Just go to church and love Jesus. For some people, that's all they hear, and that's what they thought. Now, if the recruiter was honest, if he was a, a man of character, he would set that young fellow down. I think I would like to think I would do this. Of course, I wouldn't last long as a recruiter, but I would like to think I would set him down and I would say, are you sure you want to do this? Young man, I'm going to exact three years of your life. When you go to base camp for, for training, you'll see a sign somewhere that says, as you enter through these gates, give your heart to Jesus because the rest of you belongs to the Army, the Marines, or the Navy. So you get to keep your relationship to Jesus, but you're going to be our property. We're going to tell you what to do and where to go for the next three years of your life. You don't even have a say in the matter. Your opinions do not count. If you say much, we will deal with you. You're going to get broken down from what you think you are unto what we want. Are you willing to take up a weapon, young man, and kill somebody? Are you willing to take up a 
weapon and shoot somebody and take their life and terminate their existence on this earth? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing, if you're in another branch, are you willing to open the hatch and drop a bomb on a community somewhere and kill a bunch of people? Are you willing to do that if we tell you to? Are you willing to go through basic training? We're going to holler at you. We're going to call you name. Do you know your name is Maggot? Plus, and I guess when I was a youngster, it was different today, but we're going to kick you and slap you. And if you get smart off you, we're going to whop you right upside your head. And Sergeant Sabo will put you in his brig. His brig was his locker. Open the locker and stuff you in there and shut the thing and then lock it. you got to stay in there until you learn something. If you're claustrophobic, just you do your best. You want to go through that? Are you willing to be called names and humiliated? Are you willing to trade your baggy pants and your nasty underwear for something that the army will give you that signifies neatness and tidiness? You willing to cut that big water hair off your head so and get you a high and tight so you look like one of us? Are you willing to have no nights where you get to sleep all night long for six weeks? And a wild man called a sergeant is going to come in your barracks at night and throw a garbage can right down the middle of the aisle and shake you and throw you out of bed. That recruit sitting there saying, I just want to defend the country. I just, I just, I just want to go help win the battles. Well, before you're going to be useful to the army, the army is going to have to change you to be the way it wants you to be, or you won't last, and you might bring trouble instead of success. You know, there is a sense I could do better than some of the things I said, but what do you think Jesus called us to? A playground? You think Jesus says, come to Jesus and just love everybody and love everything and everything will be all right. And in the end, you'll just go to heaven and live forever after. People that go to church expect that. Every funeral they've ever been to, don't matter how the person in the casket lived, they all went to heaven. Oh, they're playing on the big nine holes in heaven now. Oh, they're catching the biggest fish. Oh, they're, you know, they're just like it was nothing. Life had no cost. Just go to church and you go to heaven. You don't pay your bills. You're rude. You're difficult. You don't treat your wife right. You're not much of a father or mother. You don't give. You don't even try. And you're going to heaven. It costs nothing to be a disciple. What did all of this mean that we read here? What did all of these challenges that Jesus gave us, what does all of that mean? You know what Jesus taught to those that came to him like me and you? I'm preaching to myself this morning. You all can listen. Jesus said the way that leads to life is narrow. Not impossible. It is with men, Jesus said. Who can be saved, Peter asked Jesus. Jesus said, with men that's impossible, but with God all things are possible, including saving you. The way that leads to life, Jesus said, is narrow. And he said, few there be that find it. Why? Because a lot of people are going to come and hear things that are not true and think that they can live any way they want to, at any level they want to. They can sleep around, drink around, party around, cuss and act ugly and ignorant and go to church and be all right. Jesus said, I want you to know that none of that's true. That's a deception and that's a lie. If any man comes to me, as he said in Luke 14, three times, there are things that you're required to do. And otherwise, you can't. You can't follow me. You may follow a religious system. You may be a good Method Baptist Presbycostal, but you're not a follower of Jesus. And I can only imagine today how lots of people had already been turned off by this but would think, Well, why does it have to be so hard? Well, because the world has made us so soft. Anytime we think the word is difficult, anytime we draw back and say that's too hard, it only evidences how close to the world we really are. 
and how much we're so accustomed to having things our way that we just don't want to give up our way so that he can have his way and change us to the place where people start talking about us. Jesus said they're going to hate you. It's not a popular walk. It's not an easy walk. You're going to be treated harshly. You're going to be talked about. Rumors are going to fly. You won't be voted in anymore. You won't be accepted. It's going to be difficult. And for some who always want something exciting in church, a plow is the same old, same old every day. There's not a holiday from the plow. You don't say, oh, whoo, reach the end of the road. We can take off a couple of weeks and whoo. No. We ran over three rocks. We had to stop and wrestle with that rock, and it was so, the plow won't break. And I look at the field and I think, Lord God, is there, isn't there some, isn't there, look, I look at these other churches over here, they don't even have a plow. They don't have to do anything. Look at they're just happy and joyful and out playing ball and having a good time. Here we Lord, are we deceived? Is this some kind of a cult that we are over exaggerating uh, simple things or are we making more out of this than we should? Well, you gotta decide that. I don't know what any of you believe. I wouldn't ask you to believe anything that I say because I said it. But listen to what you say and then examine yourself to see if it's right or not. You're responsible for what you hear. I'm responsible for what I say. We're all going to stand before God as responsible people because we all have a will. And with our wills, every day we make choices. And you are today where you're sitting. You are what you are because of choices you've made. Whether somebody deceives you or not. Go to church, we hear the same songs, give testimonies, same songs, testimonies, another message, stand up and say, I'm glad you came, and then we go home. Same old, same old. I talked to a person just the other day who's so glad that we do do the same thing. I'm just glad to be here. The Word of God has never been boring to me. I've studied it and spoken it longer than anybody in this room has. It's never, as God is my witness, it has never been boring. The same sermon you've preached in the past when I travel a lot, I might preach it 15 times. It was as good the 15th time to me as it was the first time. There's something about His Word being fresh and new every morning. That's all because God quickens the heart of those who want it. And if you start getting bored with this, you start looking around. You start looking around, you're going to fall over that plow because that plow, you've got to keep your eyes on You get to looking around, you're going to fall over it. But people get bored. They start complaining, well, let's change. What song do you want to change? This is the day. Well, no, 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 no. We sang it every week. Okay, what, else? what would you like to sing? <clears throat> the Lord is in His holy tomb. You want to sing that one? Yeah, that sounds bad. Well, it is. What song do you want to sing? This is the day. You want to sing that? Well, no, I haven't heard that before. Okay, you bored people. What do you want to hear? Because if you get bored with one thing, you get bored with other things. You get dull of hearing. Because you think already before you get, well, the Lord ain't going to say anything different. God ain't going to do anything tonight. God isn't going to say anything this morning. I don't need to prepare my heart. I don't need to pray. I just go in there and sit in there and he'll talk for his hour and 12 minutes and then we'll go home. I still got a few minutes. And then we'll go home. You know how hard it is to preach to that? But you know how hard it will be if that's all the person has and when it's over, they have to face God with a dismal attitude and heart? What does God say? I suggest that you tell yourself it is a high, high privilege to have a plow. Whether it's Teflon impregnated, lightweight, high tech or not, it is a privilege to have a plow because only a few get plows. And even though this is hard, I have a promise from God that He will enable me to do what I've got to do. I will be able to do it. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
It'll never be too hot. It'll never be too cold. It'll never be too far, too slow. I'll never be too young or too old. Never. Because God is faithful who will not allow me to go through something that I, with His help, can't handle. We had no excuses this morning. Not a single soul in this room. You little ones, us bigger ones. We had no excuse for not doing it God's way, God's time, to His glory. We have no excuse. We make them, but they're no good. We either are committed to this or not. Because here's the deal. Go back to Luke chapter 9. Verse 62, the very last verse. No man having put his hand to the plow. That's the life God gives you to live. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit. Let me take looking back first. What does looking back imply? Well, let's go back to what I just said. You get used to this. The first... Three months of your Christian life were so exciting. You learned so much. It was so enthusiastic. And then you got in a routine. Then you got in a rut. Then you begin to tell yourself, And you begin to glance around. You bumped on that plow. I don't like this. Where is the verse that says, Thou shalt like thy plow? Well, this is not fun. Let me see. Where is the fun verse? Thou shalt have fun in it really isn't in here. Fun and life are personal things. It's what I get from this world. It's what pleases me. It's what I distance myself from anything that doesn't give me fun. Just like in the church, comfort and happiness is what people want. They want to be comfortable. They want to be happy. Don't interfere with that. Because if you do, this thing is so deep in people's lives, they'll abandon their plow. If this plow isn't going to make me comfortable and happy, then mine's going to stay in the field. That's your choice. God isn't going to say, oh, please don't abandon your He won't even say that. Again, if you read carefully in the Bible, when the biggest crowds came, Jesus had some pretty stern words to say to all of them because nobody's going to follow him half-hearted. They will either put their hands on the plow or they will turn back. And they turn back because they look back. They look back because they regret what they came away from. They're not able to party like they used to. They don't listen to the same music, thank God, that they used to listen to. They don't feel good about wearing the same old racy-looking clothes they used to wear. Because now that we're Christians, you know, the word modest. I heard that word modest being taught. And now i got a conviction about modesty in my mirror. I said to that thing many times, change your mind, change your mind. And I say, mirror, mirror on the wall, how do I look to you all? And it, it just comes back and it says, nasty. And so I have to go back and change my clothes. Mirror, give me a break. Now I got a modest thing going on. I got to cover up the top and cover the bottom, pull my britches up and put a belt on my waist. Whew. So difficult to be a Christian. So difficult. But you look back to those days when you did that and when your plow gets a little weary. Does the Bible ever talk about being weary? Don't be weary in, in well-doing. It's in there. It's part of it. And he said, when you start looking back, it's because you go back remembering how much fun you had at the parties. And well, why'd you come to the Lord? I don't know. I think maybe it's just an emotional moment. Maybe I was just, maybe I was all tore up about getting drunk the other night or whoever, whatever. Maybe I just had a, a weak moment and I thought, you know, I need to go to church. And now that I'm in church, you know, this isn't, this, this isn't what I was really after. And you begin looking back and, oh, man. Jesus said in Luke 17, one verse in there, in explaining the last days, he said, remember Lot's wife. Y'all remember Lot's wife? Would you, for a moment, put your finger in Luke Nine, and turn to Genesis 19. In Luke 17 and verse 32, he said, Remember Lot's wife. Well, we should do that. Again, we look in Genesis 
chapter 19 and verse 17. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, the angel said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Let me ask you a question. Is that fair? What was the alternative? To perish. A whole city, a big city, is about to perish. God, in His displeasure with the city, is Himself going to rain fire and brimstone down upon them until they're all consumed. And He said to one man, and whoever He would include in His family, you need to come out of this place. We can't destroy it until you're out of it. But you need to come out of it and go to the mountain. Now, when you go out, here's the deal. Don't look back. Don't look back or you'll be consumed. And so Lot and his wife, their little group, they begin to come out. In verse 26, But his wife looked back from behind him and became a pillar of salt. Does your Bible say that? Are you going to tell me that God caused a lady to die simply because she turned around and looked at what was happening and therefore her life ended? Is that pretty narrow? Now, you and I wouldn't have done it, not in this age. We excuse anything. Nothing's really all that bad today because everything's great. But with God, it's clear. Lot was walking out of there thinking that everything he'd ever worked for, he was an important man. Everything he had, all of his antiques, all of his pictures, everything he had was back in that city. And the earth, no doubt, was shaken. I mean, it must have been like an earthquake. And, and these great balls of fire were falling out of heaven and smashing. And, and eruptions of all sorts were taking place. And thousands of people were instantly dying. Dying. People who were an abomination to God, he said, they are all dying. Maybe Lot's wife, we don't know what her name was. Maybe she was thinking about all her antiques, all of her friends. You know, they weren't all bad. Okay, who's perfect? This is how we reason today about why we don't follow the Lord and do things His way. Well, who's per- I mean, don't tell me that God is going to do this or that. Isn't that what the devil said to Eve? Do you really think that God will kill you because you eat a piece of fruit? And then he would say the logic that people follow. What kind of God are you serving? Is this the kind of God you want to serve that because he made everything and he said this is good and you eat a part of what was good, you die for it? Give me a break. That's not the God of the Bible. Or a man, remember on the Sabbath day, was picking up sticks. There are not a lot of them in the desert. So he had to look around for some sticks, and he found some little sticks. He wanted to make him a little fire. And because he picked up sticks on the Sabbath, they captured him. They asked the Lord, what should we do with him? And the Lord said, stone him. Is it true that our God is a consuming fire? That the fear of God is what propels people to holiness? It's not somebody you want to to cross, yet he's long-suffering and forgiveness. Look at us. But he will not always be like that because there comes a day in which if you don't want to do it his way, he'll give you up and you'll never turn again. You'll never have any interest again about your soul. And you'll die. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back. Listen, she lingered. She paused somewhere in that journey because she was thinking. She lingered because, secondly, she longed. Oh, God, does it happen? Where are we going? It's a mountain. We don't even have any place. We don't have a sleeping bag. Well, what would you say? 
They had the best back in Sodom. She lingered. She longed. She looked. And she died. Now that's fair. You can't say it isn't fair because you're accusing God of being unfair. That's fair. God told her, don't do this. Do this. And you'll live. And she out there... Just as normal a thing as anybody in here could ever think of being. You just look back, and when she looked back, she became a pillar of salt. Now, why it had to be a pillar of salt, I'm sure there's a reason for that exactly, but that's what happens. You see, the end of Luke 9.62 said, you won't be fit for the kingdom. Is that word, you're not fit for the kingdom? Have you ever read that and bothered yourself because you think, have I ever looked back? Probably a lot of times. Now, if you don't want to admit you have, I have. I've been a many times in my life that I thought, oh, I, early. It was early in my life, not in the last 50 years, <laughs> at least 42 of them. And you think, just early on, uh, uh, man, I'm the basketball coach in the high school here, and I'm getting talked about, and I'm being slandered by, oh, by experts. And the church I go to is starting to say stuff. We're getting beat on and looked down upon. Even my daddy's embarrassed by me. Oh. And you think, you know, my buddies aren't all that bad. Let me tell you what the word fit means. You try yourself and see how you're doing. The word fit has a number of different ways to describe but one of them is properly disposed. It's a mental thing. You have a mind for it. You are mentally disposed to do it. You have in your mind, as it is properly directed towards God, a desire to do it. Jesus used the word in the salt. Remember the salt that has lost its saltiness? It's not fit for the dunghill. Remember that? Dunghill doesn't want it because it doesn't have any usefulness. It doesn't have any usefulness because of its mind. Us. We may be here physically. and We may be here thinking about a lot of things. But given the choice of getting out of some things we don't want to do, chances are we will do it because we're not mentally disposed to serving God on His terms. And therefore, you don't and you cannot. Well, uh, Brother Hamilton... What are we going to do then about the people that have come to the Lord and abandoned their plow in the middle of the field? And then later on, how many of you know this has happened too? Later on, they got out there in the world and they realized the world is not what they thought it was. It's bad. People haven't changed. It's as corrupt as it ever was. And you heard enough in your time with the Lord to know that this is why people perish, because they live like that, even though they're good old boys and good old girls. They die. They don't want to give it up because they're given to fun. So a person says, no, that ain't going to work. Oh, God, you come back. Can a backslider return? Let me ask you a question. When a person is backslid, are they fit for the kingdom? No. When they turn around and they pour their heart out to God, and they turn back to Him. Are they at least on the road to being fit now? Acceptable? That's what's happened to a whole bunch of people that are going to make it. You want to make it. You are determined to make it. You give up what you have to give up. And while you're going through the weaker moments in your life, you wrestle because you don't want to let go. This is what it means to be fit for the kingdom. You have the right stuff it takes to stay with it. And I want to encourage you. I don't want to be mean now. But there have been a lot of people that have stepped back for a moment. They did reconsider the plow. They went back to the gate. The plow was out there in the field. Fifteen feet in front of them. They're in the field somewhere. Went back to the gate and said, you know, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I'm ready for this or not. Man, I don't, I, I, you know, this faith message, this commitment all the way to God, you know, I, I just, it just seems. So they stand there at the gate, they get looking around, then they have this moment of visitation. And God, God visits. 
he comes down. And in that way that is peculiar to God and his people, he turns you around. And you said, I'm thinking like a fool. God, forgive me for this weakness. And you go back out to that plow. And you reassert yourself. And you hold on. If you can't do that, you are not fit for the kingdom. I don't care where you go to church, who you sit under, what book you're reading. I don't care what it is. You must have in your heart a desire for a personal Committed, which is what love is, a personal, lovingly committed relationship with Jesus at any cost. Though none go with me. Remember the song? Though none go with me. I'll think about following because I don't want to be a lone ranger out there pioneering this way by myself. No. Though none go with me, still I will follow. For many of us, that's a crossroads. You know that if you keep following the way you've been taught, you're going to cross the line that people are going to reject you. Are you willing? Are you willing to keep on going and do it God's way? I'm going to read you a quote from Barnes Notes. Albert Barnes is a theologian, has commentaries. He said this, In order that a plowman may accomplish his work, it is necessary to look onward, to be intent on his employment. Not to be looking back with regret that he undertook it. So in religion, he that enters on it must do it with his whole heart. He that comes still loving the world, still looking with regret on its pleasures, its wealth and its honors, that has not wholly forsaken them as his portion, cannot be a Christian and is not fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I leave you with this. 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourself. You know what's in your heart. Examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Amen. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you have been pleased with us this morning with our praise and our attention with what has been said that you have made us hear things the way we should hear it, regardless of how it was said. That we've had a moment this morning in which you have met with us. That we are open to being dealt with. That we're not so attached to the world that we cannot be brought out of it. I thank you this morning for the challenge. But the challenge of the gospel is the great separator between the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares. It's the difference between those who are and those who aren't. Grant mercy and grace to us as we continue on this path, that we do it your way, to your glory, that we might walk one day into heaven and hear you say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys that your Lord has prepared for you. Grant that to be our goal and our end. In Jesus' name, amen.